Well, good morning. If I haven't got the chance to meet you yet, my name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the pleasure of bringing you the message this morning. Um, seems like just a week ago is Christmas Eve, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I hope you had a Merry Christmas. My household certainly is pretty, uh, pretty fun on Christmas morning with the four little ones uh, looking to get up early and uh, tear into stockings and, and do that whole thing. It was a very happy and joyful and exhausting day in our household. Um, but now we're here at New Year's Eve, and it, it's amazing to think that we're already at December 31st of 2017. Uh, for some of you, it may have seemed like a long year, depending on the events and things that have gone on in your life. For some of you, it may have seemed too short, or sometimes I feel like it's always that odd mix of, man, it's been really long, but how quick it went. I think one of my uh, favorite things about December 31st is it's the day we're almost done with being inundated by all those best ofs and worst ofs and a year in reviews uh, that just kind of, it's kind of the TV and newspapers. We don't have to generate new content time. We can just kind of look back and we're almost done with it. Uh, tomorrow they have to start telling us what's happening now, not just what was happening. But uh, there was an article I saw this week that I thought would, uh, well, I thought was interesting because I thought I could use it for my sermon. And so it was an Apple News article called The Year in Power. And the subtitle was this, Who Wielded It Best? And it featured different people in there like President Trump, it uh, featured uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping, and it also featured uh, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon. And while the title caught my eye, and I read what it had to say, but I was a little disappointed, because I wasn't on the, the list. <laughs> and I hate to break it to you, none of you were either. And I won't go into the details of that list, surprising as it is, but I did feel like at least they seem to be asking the right kind of question. At least they're in the subtitle. It wasn't who has the most power, but who wielded it best. I thought, wow, are they making a, a moral judgment call on this? This should be interesting. Now, unfortunately, the author didn't actually seem to give any... Um, additional value to that. Um, it was more just listing out things people did, I guess maybe leaving you and I to decide who wielded it best. But it's a good question to ask. And it made me wonder, in an era right now that we're often consumed with this idea of power, who has it? How do we get it? How do we keep it? How do we use it? How often do we as a society, how often do we as, as Christians or as the church or as individuals, you and me, how often do we question our own use of power? How often do we question where does my power come from and what am I using it for? You might sit there thinking, well, well, Derek, remember I wasn't on the list. I don't exactly have loads of power, but I think we'll find that each of us 
does in some way. We have power in our relationships. We have power in maybe in our workplace or in our neighborhood or in your row in church that you sit in. Maybe, you know, you're the keeper of the aisle or, or something like that. There's different ways that we have power. Well, I'd love for you to open up in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, I think we have some ushers in the back that can bring you one if you just put your hand up. It'll be important as we'll be reading in it throughout. As you turn there, just a, a reminder, if this is your first time here, we're, what we're doing is finishing up a series that's been in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, and we entitled it No Filter Christmas, and now it's No Filter New Year. And it's all around this idea that real life with its real warts and real blemishes and real broken dishes and real broken hearts needs a real Savior. But the question that we want to ask as we're finishing up Matthew 2, starting in verse 16, is we want to ask, what kind of power will this new king that we've been reading so much about, what kind of power will he wield? And how will he wield it? And, and what will it be for? And the big idea, because sometimes I like to give you the answer before we even get into the section so you can see it clearly in the text, is this, that Jesus wields true power through weakness. Jesus wields true power through weakness. And it's a power that he wields in order to save us and also calls us to live by. But we don't begin by looking at the true power. Matthew actually begins by looking at the false power. Now, if you'll recall from two weeks ago, to sort of set the scene before we read, uh, Pastor Eric was talking about these Babylonian astrologers. The Bible calls them wise men, okay, or magi. And they had come from the east like we just sang about, and they had come to discover this child who was born king of the Jews. And on their way, they ended up tipping off this king in Jerusalem called Herod. Now, kind of a fun thing about our Christmas this year is that my son Hutch is reading, and he was able to read our nightly Advent scripture that we did as a family. And whenever he would read King Herod, he would read King Horrid. And my wife and I never corrected him because really he's not wrong. He is a horrid uh, person. He is a horrid king. And so we'll just let that keep running as it goes. But in the story, King Horrid, Herod, sees this new baby as a threat to his throne, to his power. And so he wants, his dead, wants him dead. But God warns the father Joseph in a dream, and they escape to Egypt. And what we read next is the carnage that they left behind. Matthew 2, 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, 
You might be familiar with this part of the passage, or, or maybe it's new, but either way, I hope it is unsettling to you. King Herod, in his anger, sends soldiers to kill infant and toddler boys in this town and the surrounding. I mean, that's truly despicable. And you might be thinking, well, well, why? Why do we need to hear about this now? We're still feeling good from Christmas and we're going to the new year. Why would we talk about something like this? And then maybe as that kind of just questioning of uncomfortability passes away, it might move to a, a deeper sort of unsettling. You say, well, why didn't God do something to stop this? And why did God only spare Jesus? And these are good questions to bring to the text. These are good questions to, to sit in and, and wonder because Matthew is not only showing us this because it's true, but he wants us to see that this happened. But I'm going to let these questions sit for a little while. And first, I want us to simply agree that this is a, a wicked and despicable act. Unfortunately, it's par for the course for what we know outside of the biblical text of King Herod. According to the ancient historian Josephus, in his later years, of which this is considered probably his last year, were dominated by this extraordinary talent of killing people. He um, killed those, all who were a threat to him. He just wiped them out, uh, former rulers, those rulers' families, their supporters, his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, his favorite wife, his oldest three sons. And upon his death, he had made a plan. He had commanded soldiers to go and kill key family members from throughout the community of Jerusalem so that when he died, they would be killed and people would authentically mourn. Thankfully, they didn't carry it out. But when Herod hears of a new threat, one that lines up with these ancient scriptures, he wants to do whatever is necessary to shore up his own control. Now, based on the size of the village and the population surrounding, we're talking about 20 kids. Now, in the list of Herod's reign of cruelty, it's not very notable. In fact, that's why it's only mentioned in the Bible and not other historical accounts, because they only focus on the, the more grand, the more political but for those who value all human life, it's a terrible atrocity. And yet it's one that helps us see that Jesus was not only born into a stable, he was born into a battlefield. While the gospel author of John lets us know that the light came into the darkness, the writer of Matthew shows us how dark that darkness truly is. It's a personal and moving reminder of the brokenness of the world Jesus entered. Because this, the evil of these homicides is not an anomaly. Not only it's not for Herod, but it's just not for the world. And it's stunning to us today, this morning, but it's consistent with a historical pattern of sin and death that's infected our world since Genesis chapter 3. Which is why in addition to looking at what Herod did, we also must ask the question of what kind of power is this? Now you might be tempted to skip the question. 
Because a mass murderer like Herod is an easy guy to write off, but if we discount him too quickly, we fail to see that the power that Herod wields is the one you and I are actually most familiar with. And it's the one that our world still applauds. So let's break down what Herod does in less salacious terms. Essentially what he has done is this, using others to maintain control. He's using others to maintain his own control. That's a core component of what false power is. False power turns people into objects, seeing them as means to an end. False power harms others to help itself. False power thinks only in terms of domination and self-preservation. And the Bible gives us some other regularly used terms to represent the same mindset. It calls it selfish ambition, vain conceit, and pride. James, brother of Jesus, writes this. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Not only is it not God's way of power, but James tells us it is of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's not just an unwise idea. It is sourced in everything that is against God. And its end result is disorder in every vile practice. Vile practice, that's a strong term. That's not just for something like the destruction of the children in Bethlehem, but it's also what we've been seeing with high-power news and media celebrities and sexual harassment. It's what we see when uh, people who are weaker get abused. It's the marginalization of those with special needs because society says, we can't find a place for you. You have nothing to contribute. And it's also found in the everyday interactions where we use others to get or to feel what we want. My own uh, personal example this past week, the day after Christmas, we packed up the kids and headed up the five freeway in order to get to my parents' house for continued Christmas celebrations because the fun never stops. And as we were driving what should have been about a five-hour drive, but with some traffic and with a very interestingly placed semi-truck, perpendicular across all four lanes plus one of the shoulders of the grapevine. Um, We had an extra hour delay, and no one was hurt. And then I missed Highway 41. And I didn't realize it for long enough that uh, my nav... And this is is driving to my hometown. I've done this many times. didn't realize this until the next fastest thing was not figuring out a way to turn around because that wasn't an option. It was turning onto Highway 46. And as I realized that my mistake was going to cost us an extra half hour of four little ones who have already been trapped in the car for over six hours, and we are late for dinner by a couple hours, and all this is happening, I suddenly felt very small and embarrassed, and lacking control. And in that moment, I felt the thoughts of my flesh 
reach out to try to gain control in the way that it knows how. And thoughts of how to blame shift some of this over to my wife started to go through my head. (laughs) Now, this is all in an instant that by God's grace, and I think because I'd already been studying this for a couple of weeks, somehow I noticed this is the heart of Herod, not the heart of God. And I think maybe for the first time ever, I didn't have to take my foot out of my mouth because I had kept it shut. (laughs) Praise be to God. But at that same moment, for the next 15, 20, 30 minutes, I was thinking about how many times have I gone ahead and done exactly that? In my moment of feeling powerlessness, reach out to bonk someone else that I care about in order to regain some power. Do you see this power for what it is? It's a power that says, how can I get more? How can I keep what I have? How do I get control? How do I take care of me? And it's the power that our society applauds and has built itself into everything from the corporate world to educational systems to government, even finding its way into the church. The false ways of power seeks to accumulate and build out of our strengths and for our own glory. And Herod is the poster boy of this. But his actions aren't the only way it's acted out. We all must come to grips with how this gets fleshed out in our own lives. And yet, even in the midst of this tragedy and this clear abuse of this false power, we are given a signal of hope. Let's continue to read in Matthew. Verses 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Apologize for this. This quote comes from the book of Jeremiah. It's chapter 31, verse 15. And it's about the women of Israel who are being personified in Jacob's wife, Rachel, weeping over their sons as they're being marched off to Babylon around 580 B.C. Now, Ramah is a small town, and it's six miles north of Jerusalem, and this is the town from which they left. They would have watched them on the road. Bethlehem, on the other hand, is a small town six miles south of Jerusalem. And it's the place, likely, that Rachel, who's sort of this, if the Jewish people had patron saints, she was sort of the patron saint of weeping mothers, um, where she was buried. And so Matthew makes this connection. He sees a non-coincidental similarity between these occurrences that gives him the confidence that God is at work here again in this situation in a similar, if not greater way. Mothers, once again, are in anguish. And here's a sense that it's okay to grieve. There is real sorrow to be found for real pain in this life. And so the Bible does not make light of it, but it does let us know that there needs to be something more than grief, which brings us to the most important reasons for this quote of Jeremiah. Death and grief do not have the final word. God does. 
He not only has compassion on this broken world, but most importantly, he offers a solution. And with that solution, there is hope. Well, where do we see this hope? Well, back in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, the very next two verses feature God telling those same women that they can stop weeping because there is hope for full future restoration. It's the idea that God is doing something, something to undo the sadness of the world and to make the pain untrue. There's hope beyond the tragedy. And Matthew wants to hint at that now because in the midst of this tragedy in Bethlehem, in the midst of a power-hungry man hurting others as a blatant picture of worldly power and the brokenness of sin, yes, even in the midst of that, there is hope hope that is found in a different kind of king who wields a different kind of power, true power. Let's finish off the chapter, verse 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled." that he would be called a Nazarene. I recognize that true power isn't exactly apparent from a first reading, but that's because we have to understand what's going on in the narrative and how it's being fulfilled. So what happens narratively? Well, first of all, Herod dies. That's really quick. It's just those two words, Herod died, but this is an important uh, little note here. Because Herod is the very one, the very picture of this worldly power, and here we see at the end of it that it is not a throne or vast wealth or vast power that he ends up with. That those who chase after power and security do not end with those things, but end with what? Death. And then after Herod's death, God tells Joseph, it's time to go back to Israel. When he gets there, he's presented with a problem. The Herod's son, Archelaus, is sitting on his throne, ruling over the area of Bethlehem, Judea, and he's just as cruel. And so the angel directs Joseph to a different part of Israel, north in Galilee, in a city called Nazareth. Now, it's not surprising to us. Even if you haven't read the story before, we're familiar with the idea of Jesus of Nazareth. That's how we know him. But this is where Matthew wants us to see that it's something much more than just the name of a town. Let's read verse 23 again. It says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, there's a couple of interesting attributes about this prophecy. First one is this, there is no such prophecy of this in the Old Testament. It's not there. 
There's nowhere in the Old Testament scriptures that say he would be called a Nazarene. Nazareth wasn't even a town yet by the time the Old Testament was done being written. But don't worry, Matthew knows this as well. Which leads us to the second interesting attribute. This is the first time where Matthew, instead of saying prophet, singular, says prophets, plural. And when we combine these two interesting attributes, that there is not a specific text or quote, and it's not, he's not trying to say it's from a specific prophet, we recognize he's not trying to reproduce a single text, but rather a broader theme that he sees across multiple prophets. And this is the idea that the Messiah will come in obscurity, that he will come as one despised, that he will come in weakness. And Matthew gets to that idea through this name of the town of Nazareth, of being called the Nazarene. You see, this term Nazarene became an expression for an individual from an obscure place. It's like talking about uh, someone being a hillbilly or being a hicks from the sticks. I grew up in a small town called Atascadero, which was a great small town to be from, and I've always enjoyed that. But whenever we'd go down to Mexico or talk to someone who uh, spoke Spanish and we told them where we were from, they would roll over laughing every time. After the third, fourth, fifth time that someone just laughs at you and then doesn't explain why, you go and look up what a tascadero means in Spanish. And rough translation, it means something along the lines of stuck in the mud or mud hole. (laughs) Now, I like my hometown, but in Mexico, using that name was sure to get you ridicule. Well, the name of Nazareth, or to be called the Nazarene, is a similar sort of thing. It makes people laugh. It lent itself to mockery and rejection, which is why Nathaniel says in John 1, 46, can anything good come from Nazareth? What a different reaction Nathaniel would have had if he had been introduced to them as Jesus of Bethlehem. he would have automatically had the honor that being a son of David would have implied. But that was not the route Jesus came to take. And so when Matthew writes, he uses the city's own poor reputation to characterize the type of role that Jesus would assume, not of royalty, but of rejection. Not of honor, but of derision. Just like the prophets said in Psalm 22, but I am a Worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Sounds like the Nazarene. Whereas Herod used others to maintain his control, Matthew points us to a king, to Jesus, who will give of his life through obscurity, rejection, and ultimately death to bring life to others. What kind of power is this? Well, this is true power wielded through weakness. And this theme plays true throughout Jesus' life and teachings. 
about himself. He says this, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. About his followers, he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And of about entering his kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, these are not just upside-down statements. They operate out of a clear understanding of where power comes from and what it is used for. It is from God, displayed through weakness as we depend upon Him for His goals, through giving instead of getting, by serving instead of being served, by lifting others up rather than putting them down, by taking up our cross instead of grasping for our crown. And Jesus himself demonstrated this completely through his life. Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be striven for, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, as fully God, took on the weaknesses and the limitations of our humanity in order to be the solution for our separation from God through our sin. And he obeyed perfectly like we never could so that he could then die the death that we should. And in this, in his act, in his full way of weakness that he traveled, we find the answer to our earlier questions. So why didn't God do something about the evil in Bethlehem? The answer is that he did. This is precisely why he was sending a savior to break the powers of sin and death and to begin the process of the restoration of all things. And Jesus came as one endangered along with the rest. Well, then why? Why did he only spare Jesus? And the answer to that is that he didn't. Oh, sure, God had Jesus escape to Egypt then, but only because God's plan for him to die was not yet complete. While Jesus didn't die with those babies, he certainly died for those babies. And as the scriptures say, God didn't spare him. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This is the power of of the king who is willing to be called a Nazarene. Jesus wields true power through weakness. But what does Jesus' power have to do with us? What does it have to do with you and me? Well, first of all, it's the power to save you. The Bible is very clear that Christ's way of weakness accomplished something that God worked through him in order to bridge the gap between us and our heavenly father. 
and that through his work alone can we be saved. And so in a way, we have to respond to his way of weakness with our own weakness, admitting that we cannot travel that same path. We cannot accomplish it on our own, but we must entrust ourselves to Jesus who has done it for us. It is the power to save us. Secondly, it is also the power to live by. Not only does Jesus save us through his wielding of true power through weakness, but he calls on us now to live by that way of power as well. And this is where it gets hard. Because I don't always feel like American Christianity has done well to make weakness any sort of banner cry. We're good at singing songs about Jesus' weakness and his choice of obscurity, but too often our desire is still for worldly gain and celebrity. We praise him for his suffering and, and we double down on protecting our little towers of control and comfort. So how do we start to get then on the right track? And it's not as simple as just uh, three steps, four steps, five steps. Really, it's going to be thousands of little steps heading in the right direction. And so I ask you to join me on an adventure. I know it's New Year's Eve. It's, you're hearing the word resolution everywhere, but I don't want to say resolution. Adventure. And the adventure is this, to, to read through the New Testament, specifically looking for these two ways of power. I've called them false power and true power. You can think of Herod and you can think of Jesus, or James 3 calls it the way from below or the way from above. There's a book that I brought and actually brought a couple of copies if someone who wants to read it. Uh, I can have them for them, but it calls it the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb. But I want you to read through the New Testament, looking for these ways of power while also looking into your heart, looking at your actions and evaluating what kind of power am I using and what am I using it for? with my spouse, with my kids, with my parents, with my coworkers or boss or employees or neighbors or people at church or random guy you bump into in the supermarket. How am I using this power? And what am I using it for? Now I'm ready to admit that I don't know all the fine details of how this works out, but I do know a couple things that, that I want it to be different for me and for, for many of you. I, I want us to understand what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And as Paul responds, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I want us to know that. I want us to know and live by what Jesus says in John 15, 5, that apart from me, you can do nothing. And so he calls on us to abide in him. So I don't know how it all works out. 
but I know that God will be working it out as we are seeking him and trusting in him to do so, and it'll work out for his glory and our good. Jesus shows true power through weakness. It's the power to save us, and it's the power by which he calls us to live. Now, in the book of Revelation chapter 5, there is this powerful reminder that the one who is worthy, the one who is the powerful lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered his enemies, who is worthy to open up God's scroll, and he comes forward and he's standing there as a slain lamb. Probably the most incredible picture of the greatest power displayed through the most incredible act of weakness. He's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The one who willingly died for you and for me, he's the one who wielded power best. And he's the one who will always continue to do so. My hope for us as we embark on 2018 is not only that it would be a great year, but that it would be the year of the Lamb. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we need you. We have no true power without you. At times we may operate in our skills and our strengths and we forget that you're the one who actually makes real things happen. Lord, let us not forget. Let us be sensitive to the ways that we have trod upon others. Let us be willing to repent, seek forgiveness, and also to forgive. And may we be those who are known for their love and give glory to their Father in heaven through our weakness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.